Welcome to your favorite YouTube channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. We have Uncle Matt Wagner in the house today. Jimmy, give a little <laughs> of that bibliography, just a smidge. Yes. Because we got a lot to talk about. I mean, it starts and stops with the creator of Grendel and Mage, um, two of probably the longest running creator-owned characters in comics and probably two of the most celebrated. He's also done a lot of work for hire, including Terminator, Batman Faces, Demon, Sandman Mystery Theater, co-writer for a 60-issue run, um, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Trinity. And Ed, I will cut it off there, but we could keep going. <laughs> Matt, thanks for coming by. You bet. <laughs> we'll get the rest next time. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I do think that uh, this, this is going to have to be a multi-parter uh, for, for certain because of the breadth of your career. And it, hey, I'm down. And it starts with, uh, with Kamiko. And we haven't had anybody on the record. Uh, Uncle Matt, you tell us a story about how a bunch of guys who were drawing ducks at comic conventions, created a comic company. <laughs> well, it was more than just ducks at, uh, at conventions. Uh, we all went to the uh, Philadelphia College of Art, which doesn't exist under that name anymore. It later uh, merged with a performing arts school that's now known as the Philadelphia University of the Arts. But, uh, you know, uh, just absolute happenstance and synchronicity. I got on the elevator one day. It was, it was one big tall building, the school. And uh, there were two guys on the elevator and one was wearing a Creation Conventions t-shirt. And for any of your listeners, viewers that don't remember, Creation at one point was the preeminent line of conventions across the country. And uh, there, there really wasn't another, uh, it wasn't localized like it is now. You know, there was, there was one group that staged cons all over the place. <clears throat> and uh i said oh comics and that was it we struck up a conversation and they had been they had been in the school a year or two more than me uh, i was a freshman at that point and they took me up to the offices of their in-school newspaper uh i use that term very loosely uh, <laughs> which was called Duckwork, and it was a combination of some some school news and and uh, uh student cartoons with a generally with a duck theme not exclusively with a duck theme um so i kind of joined on board and uh and uh my gig for the time that i was doing stuff for them was to do uh let me just preface this by saying that at that point ducks were kind of a big thing in the comics field uh it was the resurgence of popularity in carl barks and that was kind of sparked by the kind of post hippie popularity of howard the duck right so ducks was kind of a thing you know and uh, so I uh, ended up doing a duck themed uh, movie poster takeoffs. So like I did Raiders of the Lost Duck, um, Roller Duck, uh, Duck Throat starring Linda Lovedrake. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, these guys had a uh, these guys had a dream about starting a comic company. And this was, you know, just post ElfQuest, just post Cerebus, when all of a sudden the idea that you could form and maintain an independent comic company was a potential reality you know up until then it just you couldn't break through that stranglehold that the big two and charlton and gold key the few minor publishers had um i always wanted to have a career in the arts but i never imagined i would end up in comics because you had to live in the new york area you know this is before the days of anything digital of course and it was well before the days of overnight delivery so you couldn't realistically get your gigs and mail them in through the through the regular postal service you had to live in the area you had to take the train into the offices you had to pick up your gig in person go back home do it come in two weeks later and turn it back in i didn't live anywhere near new york so that was just an impossibility for me but suddenly i was in the philadelphia area which was in train distance of new york and uh and these young guys were talking about hey we want to start our own publisher we want to uh we want to do our own thing and own our own properties this was also at the very advent of the direct sales market, where all of a sudden that was possible. You didn't have to print a million copies of something and have half of them returned to you, which is what the newsstand market was like. Uh, retailers bought your prop, brought, bought your books outright, so you knew what your profit margin was from the beginning, and it seemed plausible. So after like a year at uh, PCA, um, these guys all dropped out of school to form uh, this publishing company, Kamiko. And I followed a year later, which was not a very popular decision with my parents. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they uh, they had the silent partner in the group, uh, Dennis Lasorda, 
owned a duplex. He was a physical therapist and he owned a duplex out in Norristown, which was about 20 minute train ride outside of center city, Philadelphia. And he gave us the other side of the duplex for the offices for Kamiko. And so that was just, it just turned into this big kind of like comics clubhouse. I mean, it was, it was, believe me, it was amateur hour at the beginning. It was, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing and just kind of stumbling our way through things. Initially there were four black and white books, three of which were just not popular at all. And Grendel had some popularity. I, I wouldn't call it a smash hit, but uh, uh, but that's how that's how it all kind of started. This video is brought to you by the books that we make. The best way to support Cartoonist Kayfabe is to buy our books. I have Street Angel, Princess of Poverty coming out in November. You need to pre-order that one now. It is part of a set with Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive, collecting all of my Street Angel comics. October 26th, I will be selling my self-published comics on jimrug.com. That includes True Crime Funnies, the BW zine, and the 1986 zine. And Hulk Grand Design, my contribution to the Grand Design mythos, is sold out at the distribution level. So pick that one up if your comic shop still has a copy. Ed's Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus will be in stores in November. I recommend that you pre-order this one. Get your name on a copy because these are going very fast. X-Men Grand Design Trilogy Trade Paperback will be out in November collecting all three volumes of X-Men Grand Design by Ed Piscor. And Red Room, Anti-Social Network and Trigger Warnings are already out, and in January they will be joined by Crypto Killers. And now back to our video. The the earliest stuff in, in Kamiko Primer uh, that you did, uh, that, was, that was very raw, young, energetic work. And... Uh, you know, very fascinating to see, like, if, if uh, you just come across that comic, there's not really too much to tell you that this guy's going to go on to become, you know, a, a fan favorite, you know, cartoonist, creator. Uh, how were you doing that in school? Were the they... first the first stuff in Primer, I was still in school, yes. Uh, I dropped out about the time that uh, I was doing Grendel number one. Okay, so you were like uh -huh. a teenager. 19, uh, 20? Yeah, 19, I think, just on the just on the cusp uh, of 20. Um, but, uh, you know, in regards to the rawness, I mean, you know, if you go bands that ultimately become enormously popular, if you go and check out their first recordings, they're usually, you know, unlistenable, you know, <laughs> or close to it, you know, I mean, but you, you can always detect the the kernel of what will become that uh, that band's creativity and, and the, the the motifs and the tonalities and the songwriting abilities they will let her hone into something terrific you know um and i like to think that's there when you look at those early grendel's things um but i uh i was just doggedly determined not to fail uh mainly because i had too many people telling me i was going to fail <laughs> uh without naming names somebody else that was associated with the company at one point told me that uh, i wasn't really an artist and i was just somebody riding on the coattails of their friend's goodwill and they should just dump me and and move on and uh my reaction to that was fuck that <laughs> and uh and i was just determined to you know i i had been in art classes long enough that i knew the greatest skill an artist can have is to never be satisfied and to always look at what you're doing and think next time it's going to be better next time it's going to be better you know and really try and make it better next time and one of the best bits of education i ever had i can tell you about a, an earlier student experience that was pretty cool too um one of the best uh, educations I ever had was seeing my own work in print. You know, when you're working on a drawing, you can you can draw a fucked up hand that's wrong as shit. And you can convince yourself, eh, it's not so bad. You see 10,000 copies of that fucked up hand and you know, no, that's bad. You need to do better next time, you know? Um, uh, uh, but the other experience I was talking about was uh, before I went to the art school in Philly, I went to a, a liberal arts university in Virginia near where my parents lived, uh, James Madison University. And uh, for the two years I was there, I worked on the school paper, which was a, a big award-winning paper. Uh, they had a huge circulation, which was free to the students. I think it was about 30,000 copies twice a week. And uh, <clears throat> so I did a comic strip for them. Uh, and so that was working with deadlines for the first time. But uh, kind of more importantly, I ultimately became their uh, graphic artist, which they later bumped up my title to graphics editor which was just a glorified term for spot illustrator. And what that meant was on the two nights a week they went to press, which was Wednesday and Sunday night, I had to show up at the offices around nine o'clock at night. They already had the paper laid out. And this is in the days when they used, you know, like waxers on the back of things. They actually pasted it up by hand, you know. Uh, 
And wherever they had a dead spot where there was no ad, no copy, no photo, I had to do a spot illustration to fill in there. They usually had a, you know, we, we need this here. I, I didn't have to make stuff up. We need a we need a shot of a student arguing with his landlord, stuff like that. Uh, I couldn't leave till that was done twice, twice a week. And usually took me till two or three in the morning. So for the first time in my life, I wasn't drawing because it was fun or because I wanted to or at my own uh, whim. I was drawing because it was a job. I was drawing because I had to. I, I had to meet deadlines. And just, it was like being in boot camp. It was the, one of the most valuable experiences I ever had as far as making comics goes. The the idea that, uh, no, there's no fucking around. And you can't, you can't get lost in your own bullshit. You know, you have to, you have to produce. You have to produce. And sometimes it means, like I said, that bad hand. Sometimes you got to go, well, that's good enough. Move on, you know. Uh, and for that gig, I got a one credit A per semester and I think about 35 bucks a month, which in 1980, man, I just thought I was on top of the world. You know? <laughs> Before we move out of the school experience, I'm curious what else you got out of the art classes and were you studying design? Was that, you know, you mentioned that comics were sort of maybe off the shelf at first. So what, what was the vision there for going to art school? What was the plan? Yeah, well, to be a commercial illustrator. Uh, uh, that was the only uh, viable option I saw in my mind. Again, cartoons and cartooning and comics just seemed out of reach because it was the proximity issue. <clears throat> um, whereas, you know, um, I had had at my various high schools and such, I had had some local commercial illustrators come and talk on career day, shit like that. So I, I didn't have any grand visions of being, you know, Frank Frazetta or anything like that, but I knew you could make a gig, you could make a living doing this. Um, and, and part of that was spurred by I wanted to be my own boss. My dad had worked for a company for, I think, 35 years. Uh, he, he was in World War II, and he got out, and he got this gig working for a synthetic fibers company. And after 35 years, they called him in one day and said, hey, we're having cutbacks. Uh, you'll get two weeks severance pay. You can leave this afternoon. And, you know, I'll never forget. You know, my dad kept a stiff upper lip about that, but he had to go get in the fucking unemployment line in this small town. And I was just like, that is never going to happen to me. Um, but, uh, then again, once I, once I moved to a, uh, a more urban setting, it seemed more viable that not only the illustration aspect of it, but also the comics aspect of it. I had been a comics reader since I was a kid. My mom was an English teacher and she always encouraged me to read, 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 read. You know, our local library had a summer reading program. You read 10 books. You got this certificate with 10 stars on it. I got it every fucking year. I read like 20 books during the summer, you know, and, uh. And uh, uh, and I was an only child, so I drew to entertain myself and because there wasn't much video entertainment back in those days. And uh, she didn't mind that I was reading comics and comics were reading and drawing all kind of paired together in this lovely little synthesis, you know. Um, what, uh, what were some uh, of your reading habits? Uh, because, you know, Sandman Mystery Theater gives me some pulp connotations. Yeah, there's a lot of pulp in, in my notes. Uh, Joseph, yeah, I, Joseph I, mean, I, read, Campbell. I read I read everything. I, I don't know if you if you check out Facebook, but I, I post my every time I finish a book, I write a little one or two paragraph review of it and post it. Um, <clears throat> I read everything from pulp to horror to literature to, you know, just all over the board. I'm not much of a poetry fan. Uh, I don't read a whole lot of nonfiction, although I just read a book by. Uh, oh, God, I forget the guy's name. It was, it was just a uh, Bill. Uh, Bill Bryson. Yeah. It was called uh, some, uh, Summer, One Summer, America 1927. And it was just all about America in 1927, centered on Lindbergh and uh, uh, Calvin Coolidge and Babe Ruth. And it was just a, man, just a fascinating account of these just ripe three months where America excelled and it changed culturally, societally, uh, just fabulous. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I, you know, I treat reading like most people treat uh, uh exercise and and i exercise regularly but I, I i read regularly like that too I, i'll sit down and i'm like all right i'm gonna read for half an hour to 45 minutes you know whereas most people like i can't find time to read yes you can you just don't do it you know? <laughs> but it's just a that's just a discipline you have to get into and luckily my mom got me into that discipline at a fairly young age it's very forward thinking of her to uh, encourage comics as part of reading. Right. That seems like a norm now, but it was not the standard when I was a kid. So. No, no, like like I said, like most English teachers of her generation, she didn't. She thought I'd grow out of them, but. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I wanna... um, but yeah, the uh, the the scope of my reading is just all over the board. I I just love all sorts of stuff. I remember um, early on, I think it was a Peter David interview 
but I would read everything I could find comics related. And that was like, the advice was read everything. You know, if you want to be a writer, read everything that crosses mm-hmm. your path. And I, and that always stuck with me. I was probably 11 or 12 whenever I saw that. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that, you know, I always think. When yeah. I, readers, I would, I would maintain sense. you can't be much of a writer unless you're a reader. You know, I, I assume there's some savant that could do it just like, you know, those, those few guys that can pick up a guitar and just naturally have a, a knack for it, but had never really listened to much music, but the few and far between, um, you need exposure to the the form and the experience to be able to recreate that experience for somebody else, you know? So the other, the other thing that I think of when I think of your art is design. You are one of the great designers in comics and kind of one of the early designer artists, writers right. in comics. Where does that come from? Is that self-taught? Can you tell it, talk a little bit about your design? I, I will say uh, the late great Doug Wildey told me the same thing, a compliment that I, I uh, cherish to this very day. Um, uh, it was mainly from art school. You know, you had to take a wide uh, a wide uh, spectrum of classes there. Specifically, they also made you take classes outside of your major. Like I was an illustration major. Well, I had to take some pottery classes. I had to take 3D design classes. You know, you had to have electives because their their thought was that you uh, you needed a broad spectrum of experience in art to incorporate that into your specific discipline you know and my mom always had the same opinion too you know you need to read all sorts of stuff to not to be a writer especially um but i don't know i just yeah i just kind of always had a knack for uh balance and design and uh you know for instance when i'm working on a, uh covers for my own stuff or when i'm doing cover gigs for other books these days <clears throat> um i always uh get the logo and i will trace the logo on a sheet of paper and mark out the borders and then i run a bunch off on my xerox because I'm, I'm i'm too aware of the significance of that logo and how how dominating it is and how my illustration needs to work within around and in in sync with that logo um I, it just it just wouldn't work for me to sit down and just do an illustration and let let the design team take care of it from there that that doesn't work for me it's a tremendous advantage, I think, for a creator, and especially whenever you start making comics, you know, as an indie company, the better those books can look. Like, you need every chance you can get. Yeah, it was Mazza Kelly who said, who said uh, you want to be the last hand yes. uh, on that book before it goes to press. Yeah, yeah, indeed so, yeah. Yeah, and, it, you know, in fact, I, I keep a, you know, especially on Grendel, because I can, because it's creator-owned, but, you know, even when I'm working on uh, career, um, company books, which is less and less these days. Uh, I still want to see it before it goes out. You know, I, I I get the files, and you know, there's always some little storytelling like, "Oop, that that needs to be pointing to this guy, that balloon." You know, uh, something that you know a casual reader wouldn't have noticed that I did. I, I do not in any way claim to be a good editor, but I'm good at noting the, noting the storytelling uh, discrepancies that need to be adjusted. You're the first creator that I've heard from that says that. Outside of like creator own, where you know Image sends you a book to proof, you know right before it goes to press or whatever. But for the most part, like we talk to a lot of different people, and I've never heard anybody say that. And that should be the standard. Yeah. Wow. You would you would hope. I mean, you know, I mean, you could also say I'm just a control freak, but <laughs> but no, it's more that uh, nobody's gonna know that nobody's gonna know how it's supposed to look better than me. You know, uh, even if I'm just writing it. You know. Um, for instance, I'm, I'm working on a gig uh, right now that's about to be announced in, in two weeks. And, and you know, uh, the colors come in and it's by a real star colorist. And I'm working with a real star artist. And, and I'm always the last minute bitch about the coloring. You know, hey, no, that doesn't match up with the panel before that, you know. And, you know, I feel bad, but it's like, no, this has to be, this has to be consistent. You know, it has to, and it has to be consistent so that... Uh, so that nobody notices, you know, it has to, it has to flow in a way that they won't notice these things that it's just, they're absorbing story and they are immersed in the illusion that you're creating, you know, Matt, why, why did you get to continue making Grendel comics, but we haven't seen an elementals comic, uh, in, you know, since Kamiko was publishing them. Uh, it's because Bill sold uh, the elementals to the guy that came in and swept, tried to sweep up the ashy remains of Kamiko. I see. Uh, I did not. I retained uh, 
And boy, what a fucking mess that was. But um, that, that's the other but, part of but, the question. Like, what, like, because there was some time in between Kamiko and then Dark Horse. So, can you lay some of that out? And and maybe, well, maybe the, as, a, as a cautionary tale for yeah. For well, the gist of it is, uh, I don't know that there is any caution that you can beware of with this because my contract had many bankruptcy clauses. Uh, didn't matter at all. Those contracts are civil law. Bankruptcy is federal law. Federal law outweighs bankruptcy. And so uh, uh, outweighs civil law. So if your uh, if your property is considered an asset of the company, they it goes into the bankruptcy uh, uh, considerations. Now during the course of how all that bankruptcy shit went down, Kamiko uh, the new the new Kamiko did several things that were an absolute breach of the contract, which gave me the opportunity to yank it and go elsewhere. Mm, that is terrifying. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, dudes. I've I've been. I'm surprised I'm the last man standing here from the '80s because I've been fucked so hard. <laughs> My knees should be buckling at this point. But... <laughs> I mean, you know, most recently, most recently, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but most recently, the the Netflix show. You know, um, that that's uh, that's a big illuminating thing that that has kind of come to the surface the past like two three years. The idea of these big kind of promotional uh, production companies, really producing shows to to take a tax loss or something yeah. like that yeah that's what they did you never heard about that kind of thing you know two, uh, three years i ago. will say that that was not their intention from the beginning what right. happened was you know uh, netflix was such a dumpster fire the last couple of years uh they had a lot of managerial purges and we lost our executive that was in charge of our show and you know just like uh in a lion herd, when when the new uh, alpha male takes over, he kills all the cubs from the previous uh, uh, alpha. That's what happened. The guy that inherited us never really liked the show, just didn't get it, and uh, just canned it. Ultimately, the whole thing was filmed. The whole thing was filmed. That's hard. I, I have I have all I have all eight episodes on on a DVD. <laughs> We're gonna have to leak it. Believe <laughs> <laughs> me, people beg me to. People beg me to, but. There's still rights issues that I don't want to step on any toes with and get burned even more than I already have. So, 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 so. Can we go back to the beginning of creating Grendel? It's such a uh, unusual character idea. And I wonder how much you remember going into that. Like, did you look at several ideas that you had and think this is the one that's different? Because that's when well, I look at Grendel, that's what I see is it's so different than a superhero market. So you have to remember back in those days, there weren't many anti-heroes in comics. It was pretty straight ahead uh, heroics, you know, and the big two companies had never really had much success when they tried to focus on the villain. Uh, Marvel had done Marvel super villain team up um, that never lasted for more than a couple issues. Every time they launched it, uh, DC had done a Joker book that didn't last more than two issues. If you can imagine that, like in today's market, holy shit, you know, Um uh, but uh, I've talked about this before. You know, I, I read a book when I was about 12 or 13 called Grendel. And it was by an author named John Gardner. And it told the story of Beowulf sympathetic to the monster, told it from the monster's point of view and how he was just a, an outcast and an outsider and this big, tough, bully motherfucker Viking, you know, was, was, uh, was causing him all sorts of problems and ultimately kills him. Um, and that just kind of that, that that really opened a, a door for me in regards to outlook on these sort of stories that I liked, you know. And then when I was about fourteen or fifteen, I discovered the works of uh, Michael Moorcock, and specifically Elric. You know, you you are so enamored of Elric, you you love Elric so much, and he's such a horrible person. You know, he's a horrible shit through the entire saga. He does bad shit; it never seems to work out. He ends up ultimately killing anyone that's ever dear to him. And boy, that just rocked my world at the time, you know? And I thought, is this possible? Can I do this in comics? Can I do a story about somebody that's uh, suave and attractive and all that wish fulfillment stuff uh, for my teenage self? And yet he's bizarrely amoral and a villain, ultimately. Um, uh, I also had, at the time, uh, a big reference tome called The World Encyclopedia of Comics. A big, thick fucker about like that by a guy named Maurice Horn. Um, and I used to pour through that and read about uh, international comics, which I had no access to at the time. And uh, there were two Italian comics, uh, one called Diabolique, uh, which was made into a, just a fabulous, funky uh, uh, film in the 60s by Mario Baba. And uh, and another one named Criminal with a K, 
And both of these guys were kind of gentleman thieves who, you know, uh, were were definitely bad guys, but had this bizarre kind of twisted morality code of their own, a set of ethics they wouldn't veer from. All of that kind of coalesced into into Grendel for me. Um, again, trying to come up with a, a, a hero that was or a villain that was sophisticated and, and beautiful and a hero that was uh, savage and ugly, just kind of turned things on its ear in a day when that wasn't really done. When you were producing Grendel and Mage, did you have to take outside work to kind of pay the bills? Or uh, were those books popular enough that they were taking care of business? Well, it wasn't so much I had to take outside work. It was taking care of business for me. My needs were pretty small at that point. I wasn't married. I, you know, I, uh, At that point, you could rent an apartment in downtown Philly for not that much, you know. Um, uh, uh, it wasn't so much that I needed, but of course, you know, we all, all of us in the early independent comics era suffered a sort of inferiority complex. You know, we all really wanted to work for the big two, you know? Um, and one time I was at a convention in Atlanta and these are in the days when conventions were so small that they, one night they took all the guests out to dinner at once. Cause there were only what 20 of us maybe. <clears throat> and I happened to get seated next to Dick Giordano, who was editor in chief at DC at the time. And we proceeded to get drunk together. We played. We were playing pickup sticks with our cocktail sticks <laughs> all night long. And uh, and he knew uh, Mage and uh, said to me, "Hey, bring me a proposal." Um, so I just viewed that as a, a like my 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 open doorway into the big two, uh, not realizing what a kind of nightmare that would become production wise. That turned out to be the Demon series that I did for them. Uh, it made me realize how good I had it on my own, you know? <laughs> so, and in fact, that, that experience did serve to establish my boundaries in regards to working with the, the bigger companies. You know, if you look at anything I've ever done with them, I'm always working with an editor who just leaves me the fuck alone. You know, who knows, you know, look, this guy's not going to respond well to the rain. Just, just let him roll. And so Karen Berger, Archie Goodwin, Bob Shrek, you know, all these people knew, just, just let me do it. That's the only reason you're going to hire me. You know, you're not, you're not hiring me to be part of the house. Look, you got plenty of those. If you're hiring me, it's for my individuality, you know, and let me, let me take that and fly, you know. It's funny to hear that. Cause I feel like demon, I'm a fan of that series and I have friends who are big fans of that series. So, you know, we didn't see those, the negative part of that on the page, you know, the end results, a very nice comic. Yeah, it ended up being okay, but here, here's here to give you an idea of the production. See, the big problem was I didn't know how to work with them. They didn't know how to work with me. They weren't used to working with any creators at that point. And, of course, I knew nothing about the standards of what DC, uh, uh, how they operated, you know. Uh, so, for instance, uh, Rich Franken, who inked the first Grendel story, uh, Devil by the Deed, was supposed to be the inker. And uh, so he inked the whole first issue, and uh, Dick didn't like it because it didn't look house style enough. So I had gone up to the DC offices from Philly and he said, so we've, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've had somebody do something. We had, we had it completely re-inked and it was re-inked by Alfredo Acala. And, you know, Alfredo is a fucking marvelous artist, but you couldn't see anything of me in it at all anymore. You know, I mean, he was so heavy handed. Um, so that's how we ultimately ended up with Art Nichols because I, I kind of objected to, and I said, well, the, the, why why do you want me on this book? Because this doesn't look like me anymore, you know. Um, similarly, you know, when I turned in my first script, uh, uh, I didn't know to keep a backup script. And the editor at the time uh, lost lost the script and, and then accused me of being very unprofessional because I didn't have a backup, you know. <laughs> so, again, just a lot of crossed wires, a lot of missteps on uh, both sides, but enough to make me feel like, you know, you know, over here, you're king. over here, you're king of the hill. Why don't you just stay over here? You know? <laughs> I read somewhere that uh, a lot of your process is what would be considered a kind of Marvel method. And I've read further that when it comes to mage, it's almost spontaneous writing, like spontaneous yeah. comic book making, where it's one page at a time with no real preconceived yeah. detail. Yeah, I tend to, uh, especially in my earlier days, I tended to treat you know, every new project is, well, let's, let's try something different. You know, let's uh, change was my, change was my, my God, you know, change, 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 never do the same thing twice. Do, don't do anything that your audience is going to expect, you know? Um, so, uh, to go to the first part of your question there, Ed, uh, the, uh, 
uh, when Mage, the first Mage series, and thus the first Grendel storyline wrapped up, uh, Kamiko came to me and said, we want to turn Grendel into an ongoing monthly. And, you know, I was like, well, that's going to be hard. I just killed the main guy, you know, which is when I came up with the idea of making it a generational character, that this was a, a persona that moves from character to character, you know, kind of inspired by the old Phantom comics by Lee Falk, because in the comic strips, that Phantom was like the 23rd Phantom. You know, it was a role that was passed along from uh, father to son through the generations. Um, but also, uh, you know, when I finished that, those two, you know, I was getting a lot of... Uh, a lot of acclaim you know i was up for a lot of awards none of which i won but <laughs> but uh you know everybody was kind of just sucking my ass every which way but loose and I, I luckily i was uh i knew enough to be suspicious of that and i thought no nah, I, I don't have anything worked out yet i i'm i'm on a journey man i gotta keep i gotta keep going places that are uncomfortable for me or, or that i've never tried before and so that's when I came up with the idea of working with other artists on uh, Grendel, uh, of just writing for other artists, something I'd never done before. And uh, uh, I also decided that I would work in the Marvel style, like you said. Um, and what that amounts to for people that don't understand is opposed to what they call a full script, where it'll say page one, panel one, panel two, panel three, breaks it down by panels, tells what happens in the panels, and then already has the dialogue and any captioning already written into the script describes sometimes describes the layout to the artists you know describes the action um i didn't want to do that because if i was going to collaborate with somebody if i wanted you know i can draw if i wanted that iron level of control i should draw it <laughs> so the only reason to collaborate was to allow my artists to have uh, a great degree of input into how it was going to look so my scripts would look like this page one and i would just describe what happens not breaking it up into panels not giving any thought balloons or or speech balloons or captioning occasionally throwing in a line of dialogue just for effect um then the artist would pencil it then that would come back to me and then i would provide the script on top of that and i found that a very invigorating way to work because uh you know when you when you've described something uh and see it come back to you in a concrete fashion all of a sudden it suggests all sorts of shit to you you might not have been thinking to begin with you know syntax character uh traits etc 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 you know the the artist is gonna draw something in those characters that wasn't exactly the way you were picturing and of course one of the greatest thrills is when it comes back and you're like wow boy that that matches what i described but it's not what i <laughs> pictured at all you know so that's that's really thrilling and you know, how am i going to make this work you know now it's on me to make it work um and you know eventually i've i've moved away to more uh more traditional scripting these days you know um just because you know i'm old now uh <laughs> been there done that uh but in regards to mage uh yeah specifically starting with the second mage series um i treated it very much as like a zen process uh um, and I will preface this by saying that in between the various mage series, of course, they took a long time between each one, not by any design. In fact, almost nothing I've done in my two big series has been by design. I, I am jamming the whole way. I'm making it up as I go along. No grand design. And uh, uh, with mage, I distinctly try to not think about mage in between the two series. I don't want to get locked into ideas that will eventually become stale or or re reflective of a certain period as opposed to the period when i'm actually going to create it and um it, it, and that's not to say that i don't think about it at all but i try not to you know of course ideas are going to come to me regardless um but with mage i don't do layouts or thumbnails or scripting or notes i sit down with blank pages and i just start to draw and i let it take me where it's going to go and against all odds it works <laughs> it sounds like that would be suicide right but no for me it works uh, i can't i can't recommend it in every instance of course i don't do that with everything i do but with mage it, it is so and and it continues you know i've told this story before too it continues in the very last series there's uh you know uh my family features into the last series uh my wife and kids are in it in their in their avatar selves and uh uh there's uh, 
there's a situation where, where the character that my wife is is a witch and she has a familiar which is a purple cat with bat wings and this is when they're in the fairy realms and then when they come back to normal reality the cat looks like a regular cat right and my daughter uh when she was quite young we had these two cats and their names were uh they were they were brothers and their names were uh, Paime and Mubai right and Paime is the kung fu instructor from Kill Bill and Mubai is from Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon right so we used to call them the kung fu kitties and for some reason my daughter would not call the one uh Mubai she was like no his name's Domino and we just couldn't talk her out of it <laughs> so i'm on the next to last page of the last series of mage and here we are, the characters are back in reality, and this cat looks like a cat, and it suddenly it struck me as like, she's got to call him Domino. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that's just an illustration of how it works. You know, the, these ideas come to you um, unbidden, and boy, when you get the good ones, it really is sweet. <laughs> well, while we're talking about Mage, um, there's a character in there that's kind of based on the late Joe Matt. Yep, not kind of. <laughs> who you've collaborated with before and, and now immortalized as a character. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, Joe Matt? We recently lost Joe Matt and, and you're somebody that was close to him and worked with him. Yep. Yep. Uh, I met Joe, uh, uh, I want to say about two weeks into my, uh, my first year at uh, PCA. Uh, I had this gal I was super hot on, really interested in, and uh, she lived in a group house and I went over there and Joe was one of her housemates. And uh, we soon realized we had a common interest in uh, both comics and music. And we just kind of struck up a friendship. And then we were later in various classes together. And then after I dropped out and he graduated, he just he was still living with his mom outside of Philadelphia at that point. And my apartment studio became a, a haven where you could hang out and not be at mom's house. And uh, and eventually he started helping out on Mage. He started, uh, you know, this is this is a big rabbit hole but uh, the old now obsolete process of uh, blue line coloring involved uh, you had to lay down frisket for the airbrush technique I was using. I would hire my art school buddies who didn't have any jobs or money to cut out the frisket backgrounds for me. He did that for me for a while uh, that we could go much deeper into that subject, but let's not. Uh, <laughs> then he ultimately graduated up to helping me, uh, helped me uh, uh, actually color the specifically the final issue of Mage, uh, which was double length and had a big three-page fold-out. And, oh, God, I love telling this story about how how punk rock, the, the early days of comics were. Uh, we had to get this done by a certain date. And we had been up for almost 48 hours with very brief naps at my studio. And we finally got the last page done. And we rushed out of my studio and ran over to the the train station in center city philadelphia we hopped on the train and took the train out to norristown the suburb where kamiko was and bob shrek met us at the train station in his car and he zipped us back to the offices where we put page numbers on all the pages by fucking hand right <laughs> and we hopped in the in the car and rushed to fedex because this was the last date before if we didn't make it ship it get it to the printer it was going to cost a lot more money to print it because you had lost your print time your scheduled print time and we got there three minutes before closing <laughs> boy that was such a sense of accomplishment <laughs> uh but joe and i just stayed friends over the years you know of course for a while he uh he dated uh my sister-in-law uh i ultimately ended up marrying uh uh, Diana Schutz's middle sister, uh, Barbara. <clears throat> Joe famously dated the youngest sister, Trish, for a while, who appeared in his comics. They had a very contentious relationship. Uh, we both moved to Montreal to live with our respective gals. Um, and I hadn't seen Joe in face-to-face uh, -face in many years, but we kept in very close touch uh, on Facebook Messenger, you know, he was a night owl, and sometimes when I'd go to bed, I'd have my laptop, and I'd see he was online, and we'd just start chatting and we'd be there for an hour or more you know uh so it was very close to joe um <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago i i received a call from his ex-girlfriend who left me a message said hey this is this is joe's ex-girlfriend could you please give me a call and immediately i knew well that's not gonna be good and sure enough she called to tell me he had passed so very sad uh it's hard to believe he's not gonna be there for my chats anymore but I mean, Joe was a Joe was a stubborn dude. You know, he uh, 
in one aspect, he was absolutely as as neurotic and stubborn and uh, and such as he portrays himself in the comics. Yet, uh, in the pages of his autobiographical comic Peep Show, but yet I always try to tell people, you know, on the other hand, he was super charming and super funny, and people just generally really liked him. You know, yeah, he was a frustrating friend to have. I have lots of frustrating friends. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he, he had his various neuroses that you always hope he would kind of get over, but of course he never did. But, you know, I have other friends like that too. You know, people are what they are. Got to take them, got to take them at face value. Matt, you've worked with a, a, a gang of uh, really marvelous artists and uh, no pun intended, by the way. And I, I wonder if there is any strategy going into those collaborations. Do you get to know these artists and kind of uh, write up to their strengths or uh, do you go in cold with some of these guys? Pretty much always it's, it's somebody I've chosen and asked to work with because I like what they do. Um, um, specifically let's use the example of the two Grendel black, white, red, and red, white, and black series I did, which were an anthology with a lot of different artists. I think there were 40 in each one or was it 20 in each one something like that 20 or 40 in each one um and with all of them i asked uh you know what what do you want to what do you like about grendel or what do you want to draw and i would gear the story towards them uh specifically i asked chris uh chris sprouse what do you want to draw he said i want to draw architecture <laughs> so i wrote him a story that was all full page splashes of architecture with little tiny figures of grendel and argent kind of uh set amongst the immensity of the city you know and then a single word caption below kind of describing in fairly poetic terms uh uh what was happening there almost almost song lyrics sort of thing uh another example was andy watson uh, uh who i had written the introduction for his book geisha for uh oni press and as a thank you andy did me this drawing of of uh grendel of hunter rose on a horse riding into the riding into the surf with the sun setting in the background and i was like fuck that's amazing you know in his very simple blocky anime anime sort of influenced style and so i got him to agree to do one and i was like i gotta include that page so i uh so there again i just described big full page splashes to him and then i wrote uh of course his work has such a japanese influence that i wrote a uh, a haiku under each one you know and it was a grendel haiku all fucked up with like you know despair and bloodletting and you know, <laughs> that kind of shit um uh here's another cool one uh i had been friends for years uh talking about another late great dearly departed tim sale um uh and i wrote uh tim and i had a great love of uh noir fiction and i wrote a really rough noir story for him and tim very kind of embarrassedly called me and uh and said uh yeah i, I can't draw this the, the ending was just too rough for him. And uh, I said, okay, that's fine. I'll find somebody else. It, it ended up going to uh, John Paul Leon. Oh God, somebody else dearly departed. Mm. Damn. Um, who did a, John did a fucking amazing job on it. But then I wrote a different Norish story for Tim that ended up in a, winning the Eisner for best short story that year. So it's funny how, how the creative process works and you just kind of got to be nimble on your feet and adapt to whatever situation comes at you you know but yeah i really try i really try and pay attention to the artists i'm working with and what their strengths are and write towards their strengths you know i try to challenge them a bit here and there but i want it i want it to be a fun process for them you know man that that it, it's interesting to hear like the early days of starting to do grendel with other artists and then thinking about how well that's worked out in your career in terms of writing for other artists you haven't illustrated a ton with other writers, um, a couple of names that, that I come across, Neil Gaiman, Kevin Smith, you know, kind of shorter pieces. What's that experience like for you as an artist working off of another writer? Yeah, I've only I've only worked for uh, other writers. Uh, it's either five or six times. So, it was, as you said, Neil, Kevin, James Robinson with the Terminator one shot, uh, Greg Rucka with the illustrated Grendel novel we did. And very recently. Uh, another one, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, <clears throat> I quite enjoy it. You know, it's it's a chance to um, it's a chance to wear a different hat. Um, you guys sitting there in your hats. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's somebody else takes the reins of narrative, and it's your interpret. It's your job to interpret that narrative. 
And, uh, you know, I don't do it very often because I like, I like storytelling. I like writing the narrative. Um, but on the occasions I've done it, I've, I've really had fun with it. Uh, as you said, I, I drew uh, Kevin Smith's very first uh, comic book story, a really terrifically little rude story called Walt Flanagan's Dog. Um, There's a big dog boner in there, I believe. Big dog boner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. And I don't know if you ever saw, I then designed the, uh, I then designed the uh, first uh, Jay and Silent Bob toys that came out of graffiti design. And we did the dog. And I did him as a tripod, like his hind legs are dangling. <laughs> his dick is the third stem, you know. Uh, 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 but most recently, uh, so my son, uh, who is also my colorist, uh, generally, um, now branching off into his own stuff, which is very proud of. Uh, uh, but he's a big fan of the podcast, uh, 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 last podcast on the left. Um and so he turned me on to that, and I listened to some of that, but then I discovered the the main guy that's the writer and main host on it, Marcus Parks. He and his uh, wife, uh, uh, Carolina Hidalgo, uh, do a sister podcast called No Dogs in Space. And it's a deep dive into, like, all my favorite bands. Uh, the the uh, New York Dolls, the Ramones, the, the Velvet Underground, the the Replacements, the Damned, uh, Patti Smith, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I love that uh, that podcast. And uh, so I sent them a, to their Gmail account. I sent them a fan letter and said, hey, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of me because I could tell they know about comics, you know. But, you know, I've been in comics for a long time. And I got to say, you know, these bands you cover are the, the total fucking soundtrack of my career, you know, and I, I just love it, you know. So I heard back from Marcus and um, he said, would you be interested in drawing a story that I write? They do a comic published by Z2 called Last Comic Book on the Left. And it's going to be a story about Sid and Nancy, about who, who killed Nancy. And I was like, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> but in regards to interpreting, uh, you know, Marcus, it was neat to do a story that's nonfiction, you know, that, that isn't full of uh, anything fantastical. Um, and Marcus is a, a, a vigorous researcher, does really does his research. So it was cool to have to look up photo reference for all these sideline characters from the scene in that day. Um, but as a lot of comic book, uh, a lot of people who don't write comics, when they turn to writing comics, he overwrote the fuck out of it, right? <laughs> Crowded every page, just way too much. It was originally supposed to be an 11 page story. And I was like, no, dude, I'm going to, I'm going to send you this script back and show you how I'm rearranging it into 20 pages where, you know, we're opening it up. We're giving the art chance to breathe. We're giving these characters and moments, these characters who are very iconic historical characters, you know? Uh, they can't be squeezed into tiny little depictions this big, you know. Um, and then, of course, we had to get Z2 to, you know, approve paying me for more pages, which they did. But uh, but that that turned out great. That's coming out pretty soon. I'm very happy with that. Brandon's coloring that, too, of course. You know, Was uh, the Neil Gaiman collaboration on Sandman, was that one of the biggest paydays? And you don't got to get into numbers, but I say that because I know a guy who did 10 pages of that of that uh, series. And was getting 10 grand checks every quarter for years in the 90s for 10 pages, man. Well, it wasn't that much, but it is continual. Like, they keep that shit in print, and I still keep getting, you know. I mean, I, I've done a lot of things for DC, so when I get my royalty uh, statements from them, it's a bunch of shit. But that, that one issue of Seasons of the Mist I did is on there. But then, of course, I also did the collaboration between Neil and I for uh, the combined Sandman and Sandman Mystery Theater, the Sandman Midnight Theater, it was called um and you know that's that's not as imprint as uh seasons of the mist but yeah get get checks for that all the time too over time what, what do you think your your biggest sort of most sustainable fi financial piece of work is grendel yeah yeah the omnibus it's and all that a, yeah it's just such a huge volume of work you know um and, and not only that i'm i'm continuing to do more i mean i'm working right now on a, a new 12 issue story arc that is the sequel to the one i did last year called the uh, devil's odyssey um and i got about eight issues of that done um uh we also have coming out in just a few months uh a book that was you know gonna be my idea was that it would be supported by the tv show uh you know uh 
Dark Horse recently reissued the Grendel omnibuses in big fatty volumes there again to try and uh, capitalize on the TV show. But it occurred to me that, you know, if somebody's coming to look for Grendel from the TV show, a big fatty 600 page volume might not be something that entices them. Right. Uh, so when I looked at Devil by the Deed, the first Grendel storyline, which originally was serialized in the back of Mage, um, the Hunter Rose story arc, the original Hunter Rose story arc, I should say. Uh, even I was kind of surprised to realize it's only 37 pages long. And I drew it when I was 24 years old. So I approached Dark Horse and said, hey, the the TV shows the Hunter Rose storyline. Uh, let me redo Devil by the Deed. I'm going to completely redraw it. We're going to stretch it to 120 pages. And I'm, I'm going to use the same format, which is these very designy kind of pages with blocks of text as if you're reading Christine Spar's history of, of Hunter Rose. But it's drawn by me now at age 60. You know, after after 40 years of, of producing comics continually under my belt, after my skill levels have changed dramatically, after different outlook on things... Um, uh, and it's called uh, Devil by the Deed Masters Edition, and that's coming out in November. That's really exciting. happy with that. That's exciting. Yeah. Let that, and uh, you're far in the Art Deco uh, at 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 the point of, of putting that together. Then, uh, were you bringing some of those sensibilities into uh, the the newer piece? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But but a little a little more, I will say a little more, uh, a little more open in regards to the sort of designs I would use, and a little less restrained in the various specific motifs. Like for instance, in the original one. I had these little uh, tiny boxes that floated around everywhere just because I thought that was kind of art deco-y. And oh my God, they're all over the fucking place in the original version. <laughs> and so I, did, I didn't want those. <laughs> so uh, my only nod to that was the caption boxes have uh, a little little decorative boxes like that that kind of anchor them here and there. And that was my only like, okay, that's acknowledging that that was there in the original, but I've kind of purged the rest of the art of that motif. So. I have another big question about uh, the the idea of doing creator-owned stuff and then working for DC Comics or some you know main, mainstream situation. Is it as is there a strategy to that, uh, or is it you know is it like a Scorsese, one for me, one for you kind of thing? Or yeah, yeah, it... it's that, it's that, and, and you know, it's uh, the strategy is a you know. Uh, those product those projects will uh expose my name to a readership that my indie stuff won't and hopefully they'll come check out more stuff and i i hear from people a lot of them do you know i read i read your two i read your two batman series uh, monster men and mad monk and that encouraged me to go pick up grendel um but it's also it's uh i equate it to a band doing uh cover versions of shit that they liked when they were young you know if you go look at my stuff as, for the big companies aside from mystery theater they're not very long I, I don't I don't linger there, you know. I go I go I have a little fun and I come back to my own stuff. And uh and it's always fun, you know. I, I at this point I've managed to tick off all the all the characters that meant something to me when I was a teen growing up reading comics. Um uh, I think the shadow was the last one and I, I even got to do a Grendel Shadow crossover, you know. Um at this point I don't think there's anybody on that bucket list anymore, <laughs> but uh but who knows, maybe. I would definitely, uh, if DC would let me do a, a in period uh, Superman story, I would I would be hot for that. You know, I'm I'm. What period do you think? A, in thirties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a firm advocate that uh, unless it's something like Grendel that readjusts and reinvents itself over and over again, pretty much all of these pop culture characters work best in the the time frame and the technology that they are invented in. You know, when you look at Batman now on screen he's a paramilitary character that has nothing to do with the dark knight detective you know they got a little closer to it with the matt reeves movie here most recently but uh but yeah he's, he's armored to the gills and you know additionally no it's just impossible that a billionaire would be able to with, with such a public persona would be able to hide those activities you know tmz would be all over that shit you know um the the shadow is the one i love to point out specifically the shadow only works in a day and an age when every man on the street was wearing a hat 
But otherwise, <laughs> otherwise you're like, who's the fucking doofus in the hat? You know? <laughs> Fedora bro. And it also, it also only works in a, a day and age when cities still had shadows because they don't anymore. You know, unless I was in New York, like every spot is lit up as bright as it could possibly be. You know, um, Tarzan only works in that time frame. Sherlock Holmes, you know, I mean, I, I kind of enjoy the Benedict Cumberbatch stuff, but Sherlock Holmes only works in Victorian London, really. Um, Superman, everybody always makes fun of the glasses, you know, how's that, how's that disguise anybody? That was in a day and age where people were not photographed that often. And you have to figure that as Superman, he wouldn't stick around very long. He wouldn't he wouldn't be there for, you know, Macy's Day parades and shit like that. Um, it's very possible that that somebody wouldn't notice, you know. But again, that only works then. It doesn't work now when everybody is carrying, you know, a camera with them at all times, you know. Um, so, yeah, I would love to do a Superman story set in 30. They're never going to let me do that. But. Come on, DC Comics. <laughs> uh, get, get, get your act together. Yeah, it's strange to think that they you know the the knee-jerk reaction is they'll never let you do that why you Especially have a proven track record a big it's, history with them yeah that, that speaks to i had somebody tell me one time i had somebody tell me one time nobody cares what happened in the 30s wow which just saddens the fuck out of me because you know the old are, line about those who ignore history blah 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 these, these are the guys too that like whenever i turn something in they're like yeah what font do you uh use to letter your comics and i'm like well i did it by hand and they they say how it's <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable um matt you you mentioned you know the superman story as being something but i i look at your career and i think like pretty innovative creator and i wonder do you have a list of other things like you I don't know how involved you were in the Grendel TV show, but is that aspirational to do more work in, in video? Um, do you have any no. interest in Marvel? Did you have a connection to those characters as a kid? I didn't have as much of a connection. And strangely, Marvel has never asked me to do anything. Uh, the only thing I ever did for Marvel was the first issue of Ultimate Marvel Team-Up, and that was all a result of Bendis. Bendis was a big fan of mine, and he was in absolute control of that book. And he called me, asked me if I'd want to do it, and I did it. But, you know, the, 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 the one thing I will say is bad about Marvel. I don't know if this is true for you, Ed, but uh, they are shitty with their royalty reporting. You get the first royalty check and then I never saw another one. And I know that thing's been reprinted a million times. Yeah. Unlike DC, where every six months, man, I get it. I get it. It's down to the penny. Like if the demon number four was reprinted in Brazil, I get 14 cents, you know, and it's all enumerated. Um, so not that much interest in working for Marvel. As far as Hollywood and all that shit goes, okay. As I said, I'm a control freak to some degree, you know. I'm king of the hill where I'm at. Why would I want to go, like, have some network executive tell me we need more of this, you know. Um, and additionally, according to them, I have no writing samples. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's come up a couple of times in this conversation but you strike me as somebody as a cartoonist that has a very good business sense, um, some commercial consciousness. I wonder if you can talk a little about where that comes from. Are you um, connected? You mentioned Bendis. Do you have kind of a circle of cartoonists that you guys talk the business side of how to how to succeed as a cartoonist? No, uh, it's just kind of innate, and I truly don't think I'm that good at it. I could be better. I'd be much richer if I was better at it. Um. I'm okay, uh, mainly mainly because that's you know you we were back in the early days of Kamika. You're just kind of thrown into the maelstrom. You're dropped in the pool, you know, with no swimming lessons. You got to figure it out on your own. Um, you know, we had when I was in art school, we had some advice about the business end of things, but not enough. Uh, I don't know. I just think everybody. Because in, in effect, when you're a comic artist, you're an independent contractor. So just as the same way if you were, uh, uh, if you did home renovations or something like that, you would have to know your business. Um, and there are the dudes that know their business and get by, and I think that's me. And there are the dudes that turn that business into a grand franchise where they're spread out over cities and states with a, a big, big thing. That's the turtle, guys. <laughs> You know, that's not me. So, Grendel got some licensing. Uh, do you, do you keep a running tally on uh, how how much uh, stuff has the you know Grendel eyes and the little white dot 
for the nose and all well that. yeah i mean i try you know there's a there's a site called redbubble which has uh uh various vendors selling uh and there's there's some dude on there that that pirates grendel shit all the fucking time i've had my lawyer send two or three things cease and desist things to redbubble and i will say in redbubble's defense they they take it down right away but he just comes back with a different name they they don't know to check all this shit out so i just kind of gave up after a while um but yeah we've done tons of great fun grendel licensing shit over the years i mean you know i it's not uh you know, unlike turtle toys, it's not like a huge part of my income, but you know, this stuff's always fun. I'm looking, uh, Dark Horse just did a new 40th anniversary statue. I'm looking at it right across my studio here. You know, we did lunch boxes. At one point we did Zippo lighters and shot glasses and uh, various statues through uh, Bowen Designs. Um, I'm always open to that stuff, but I consider that just uh side gravy, not, not a main part of Additionally, I don't really run a, uh, I don't run a website and sell my own prints and such, mainly because I don't want to run a mail order business. It's sure. just that that's a job in and of itself, you know. And got got to find one of those. Stick kids. to what I do. I stick to what I do, you know. <laughs> Put one of the Wagner kids to work running the. Yeah, except my, my the one Wagner kid already works in the business and he's busy enough, and the other Wagner kid she doesn't give a shit about. The <laughs> she's got her own. She's got her own career, so. <laughs> Matt, can you talk a little about the tools that you use? Sure. Uh, I'm going to go off screen here to grab one real quick. I see that Comic Confidential poster back there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I used to live up in Canada when that came out. So uh, that was a big deal at that point. Um, uh, so I've kind of fallen into using these over the years. Uh, they're made by Faber-Castell. They're called Pit Artist Pens. And they come in a variety of different nibs. I like this one that's uh, called the bullet nib, but they make a you know they make a fine nib, a medium nib, a brush nib, uh, a big brush nib. Um, they they unlike markers like this, art markers from when I first started out. The ink in these is real good. It's color fast. It's waterproof. Used to be that wasn't the case. You couldn't really use these. You had to use dip pens and ink and all that stuff. And I just like not having to worry about spilling shit or you know, all that stuff. It's it's very convenient tool. Matt, they, thank you so much for coming by. Uh, I know you got a big announcement within uh, the next couple of weeks. Uh, can, can is it a collaboration? Yeah. So I would like to have the collaborator maybe come on and and uh, you know. Oh, he, some he'd be, about he that. yeah, he'd be happy to. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're big fans here over here. I don't remember if I told you. I, I think we. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, I've had some conversations about this project. I'm very excited for it. But Matt, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, one of the things that we do on on the channel every now and then is take uh, take one of the creators' works and sit with the creator, go go through that piece with them. And if you were up to such a thing at, at some future time, that would be awesome to kind of sure. hear your point of view on composing your pages and where your mind was when you were developing the story but such a pleasure to talk to you long time coming on the channel and just th thanks so much for the for the uh, opportunity you bet happy to come back so uh before we split though do you want to let the people know uh social media any other stuff that you can release what should they be on the lookout for in the near future I, i'm just on facebook and twitter i found instagram just a pain in the ass all those damn hashtags uh, <laughs> so but you can find me on both the uh, um uh facebook and twitter at facebook i'm just matt wagner and, and on twitter i'm matt wagner comic and, so, a, and a reminder to everybody the grendel devil by the deed master edition coming out next month no, so it's november yeah next month yes mm -hmm. yep so i, I yep. would say uh, add that to your pool list everyone just in time for the holidays very wise yeah it's really cool looking and, and there's both a standard edition and a signed uh signed and numbered edition in a slipcase. real real pretty edition so super cool you guys have your marching orders Okay, Fabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell so that we can notify you when new videos are available. Cartoonist Kayfabe-tober is upon us, 2023. These are your drawing prompts. Make sure that you tag us, add us. Make sure that we see these uh, pieces that you put together so that we can share those with our audience at large. Boost your numbers, get, get your name out, and uh, it's always a pleasure to see what you guys come up with. We are a daily YouTube channel, and uh, with more than 1,500 videos in our filmography at this point, 
some stuff might have slipped your radar and we might have talked about your favorite comics give the channel a search for your favorite titles check out those episodes and if we did not cover your favorite comics put something in the comments let us know what those comics are we could push those comics a little bit higher on our to read piles the uh videos are supported by the king kayfabers on our patreon they get access to all the videos before anybody else they're hanging out with us right now in a live stream recording session as we put together uh this week's worth of videos and uh, we are very much in appreciation for the king kayfabers who are supporting the channel ultimately though the videos are brought to you by the books that we make before you is a sample of our bibliography to date but we are working all the time and coming october 18th is the hip-hop family tree omnibus you guys have been watching this comic kind of develop over the this past year of 2023 and it is almost upon us and about 75 percent of this print run is accounted for already which i have to absolutely thank you guys for uh what that also suggests is if if you even think that you want this you better order it up quick because uh, that last 25 percent is going to go pretty quick whenever uh you know stores sell stuff off the rack and then have to re-up 500 plus pages 150 page of additional material and uh best book i ever made please scoop that up not the only holiday effort to come in 2023 uh, in November comes the X-Men Grand Design Trilogy trade paperback. Uh, it's crazy how uh, this one works because it's probably off to the press right now, mere weeks before its release, so I don't have a comp copy to show off. So it's going to be smaller in scale than what you're, lo you're looking at, but these big volumes, some of them are out of print, and it's going to have all of my X-Men Grand Design work in there. Please check that out, man. It's perfect. Jump on point for any X-Men fans or, or uh, you know, enterprising X-Men fans if you're curious about that title. Red Room has been my focus uh, the past couple of years in terms of new comics, two trade paperbacks out, the Antisocial Network, Trigger Warnings, uh, Halloween time, right? Read some uh, tongue-in-cheek horror potboilers. There's going to be a third volume coming out in January. It's called Crypto Killers, and uh, it is the best round of comics uh, yet. Each one of these is self-contained, though. It has four complete uh, self-contained stories. If you see either of these out there in the wild, give it a shot. Jimmy, tell the people what you got going on. Hulk Grand Design is my contribution to the Grand Design mythos, and it is sold out at the distribution level. So pick that up if it's sitting on your comic shop shelves right now, because these are going to become harder and harder to find. Coming out in November, Street Angel Princess of Poverty from Image Comics. You need to pre-order that one now. It collects all of the Street Angel comics that are not in Deadliest Girl Alive, also available from Image Comics. These two books together will comprise the complete set of all of the Street Angel comics that I have made so far. And I have been self-publishing lately and will be selling these on jimrug.com, my website, at the end of October, October 26th. That will include the BW zine, uh, highlighting panels and art and ads and editorials from the uh, black and white explosion comics of the 80s that I love so much. The 1986 zine is all about the year 1986 whenever comics really kind of, the direct market and comic shops took over the direction of comics in, the, uh, in America. And True Crime Funnies, these are nonfiction stories uh, featuring traditional true crime subject matter like a uh, drug cop, but also featuring some wrestling stories uh, from the early 20th century, as well as an Andy Warhol soiree into wrestling one night. So check those out. Mark your calendar, October 26th, jimrug.com. And if you can't wait that long, you can read a lot of this stuff on my Patreon, patreon.com slash jimrug. The books are the most important part to keep the channel uh, solvent and to keep the videos coming to you on a regular basis but there are some ways to directly support the cartoonist kayfabe channel jimmy let the people know subscribe to the cartoonist kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video it's a way for us to keep you up to date on what we have going on and where we're going to be you can also pick up cartoonist kayfabe t-shirts merchandise mugs hats stickers all kinds of stuff at our spread shop and that link is also under this video in the show notes there you have it plethora of ways to support the cartoonist kayfabe channel jimmy please give the people their final marching orders and we'll be on our way read more comics